Coming up in this podcast, Crown Casino Royal Commission, legal moves, Nev Power, COVID, a big oil discovery, WA's most influential, and lobbyists. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to this edition of Mark My Words. I'm Mark Beyer. My regular partner, Mark Powell, is off on a charity walk this week and joined instead by Jordan Murray. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you, Mark. No charity walks for me this week. Well, Mark, the big news story this week is the Crown Royal Commission in WA's findings have been released. It's a 59 recommendation report, and I imagine you've been through all 996 pages, or you've at least got around the details there. Tell me what you found, and tell me what your takeaways were. Okay. Well, I think I've scanned quite a few of the 996 pages. I appreciate it. Not quite all of them. (laughs) Uh, Look, I suppose there are two broad themes in my response. One is that the the main findings and the recommendations don't really come as a surprise to anyone, but there were some surprises in what the Royal Commission didn't do, and I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, So in terms of the broad themes, uh, as many people would have read, uh, the Royal Commission found that Crown was not fit to hold a casino licence, essentially the same as the Finkelstein Royal Commission in Victoria, and in fact the whole way through this There are many, many parallels between the findings in Victoria and Western Australia. And no surprise, really. It was an integrated national business and the issues that happened in other states have happened here. Uh, Issues like uh, facilitating money laundering, um, having close links to junket operators with ties to organised crime and criminals, uh, not being open and accountable in its dealings with the regulator, um, but also finding numerous deficiencies in which the way the regulator, the Gaming and Wagering Commission, um, undertook its task as well. Uh, The Commission, as I said, concluded Crown was not fit to hold a gambling licence in WA, but then went about establishing, okay, what's a pathway that will allow Crown to get its affairs in order? and allow them to keep on operating. And the model that they've come up with was essentially the same as in Victoria. One, beef up the regulator. Uh, Two, put in place an independent monitor to have very careful scrutiny of Crown. And thirdly, then give Crown two years to clean up their act. Uh, The government has not yet determined who that independent monitor will be. Um, Victoria already has that system in place. And that person in Victoria can go as far as being able to review and I think even veto board decisions. So it's yet to be determined just how much power that independent monitor will have in WA. Uh, But that's the model. Now, of course, once that two-year period is up, most likely the Crown business will be owned by Blackstone. That's the giant US investment group. It's already lodged a $9 billion takeover bid, which... Crown's Board of Directors has recommended. Uh, There's a probity review currently underway um, into Blackstone, um, but most likely they'll end up owning the business, which means we'll have very little visibility on what's going on at Crown when it's no longer listed on the ASX. In terms of the surprises for me, there were some of the things that the local Royal Commission didn't do. And just for context, 
they, of course, had the benefits of the Bergen Inquiry in New South Wales, uh, plus the Finkelstein Royal Commission in Victoria. Uh, despite all that, they actually took a longer time. They took 12 months to get this done. Um, and yet some of the key issues that were raised, for instance, the legislation under which Crown operates in Perth requires the head office, that's the place where, quote, central management and control is exercised, has to be in Perth. And yet the Royal Commission was not able to reach a conclusion, quote, one way or the other, whether the head office was located in Western Australia. Now, that really surprised me. They acknowledged this is a very serious issue, but could not reach a conclusion. Mm. Uh, similarly, they failed to get to the nub of who was actually running the show. They spent a lot of time analysing the work of Barry Felstead. He was Chief Executive of Australian Resorts, one of the top executives at Crown. He was there for a very long time, very close to James Packer, the former chairman. Um, at one point, they said, uh, Barry Felstead, uh, they said substantive decisions on group policies were, quote, probably made by him. You know, remarkable lack of clarity there. Uh, one of the other big issues they investigated was the arrest of Crown staff in China back in 2016, when there was, that was part of the big corruption crackdown in China. Uh, Barry Felstead knew a lot about that in the lead-up. Uh, failed to make follow-up inquiries, failed to inform the local board, failed to inform the regulator in advance. But one of the key sentences, I thought, uh, Felstead testified that he believed adequate measures had been taken to look after Crown's China-based staff. The Royal Commission does not make a finding about Felstead's belief in this regard. So there's a few examples of what I thought were really fundamental things, and the Royal Commission just doesn't actually come to a view on it. Um, and equally, there is no overall assessment of all of the key people involved, whether it's James Packer or John Poynton or Barry Felstead. You know, there's passing comments on some of these people, but unlike the interstate inquiries, no overall assessment. And once again, that's fine. That's surprising to me, because if you want to fix up an organisation, you want to really get to the heart of what went wrong. And part of that, in my view, is assessing the individuals and coming to a conclusion. Now, this Royal Commission did not do that. Uh, whether other people take follow-up action, uh, the Minister said that the report's been handed to all the relevant regulators, including the police and ASIC and the C. Uh, but based on what we've seen in other states, there hasn't been much follow-up, um, if any, in terms of prosecutions, um, other than Austrac going after the company for its breaches of money laundering laws. Um, I'd be surprised if any of that changes out of this Royal Commission, because it really went over the same ground as the other two inquiries and came up with very similar conclusions. You talked about what surprised you there before, and I think what didn't surprise me in the uh, state government's response was this consistent citing of employment figures at Crown. So I believe the Premier had said about a year ago that he was looking to looking to protect, was it 5,500 jobs at Crown, uh, in considering whatever the recommendations were from the Royal Commission. Uh, and I believe the Gaming Minister, Tony Booty, made a similar comment uh, when the report was 
handed down. And I also know Victoria's Premier, Daniel Andrews, had made similar comments, and I believe this was in relation to whether or not Crown should just not be given any chance to remediate some of the issues that were raised. But, you know, to have an organisation that's been deemed, quote, unsuitable to hold a gambling licence and which has been found to facilitate money laundering, has failed to effectively police itself, has permitted junkets with links to criminals, has failed to minimise gambling-related harm and failed to be open and accountable in its communications with the regulator. I don't know, it, it doesn't sit right with me on a personal level. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of, of an opinion piece that Tim Costello wrote late last year. So Tim Costello, obviously, brother of former Treasurer Peter, he was Mayor of St Kilda for some time, uh, noted anti-gambling uh, advocate. He'd commented on uh, on when Crown opened its Southbank facility. This was in the late 90s in Melbourne. And he was a prominent advocate against the casino opening for obvious reasons. And he said at the time people called him a wowser. Uh, because of his stance. And there's a quote in this opinion piece. It was printed in uh, the Saturday paper. Uh, He was commenting on how the Finkelstein inquiry allowed Crown to hold its licence on probation and why that was given the findings. And he said, it appears to be because of its size as the biggest single-site employer in the state, the taxes it pays and its importance to the state's economy. Essentially, despite its illegality, it is too lucrative to be punished. Many innocent parties might be hurt if it lost its licence. Just as big banks in the United States had to be bailed out in the global financial crisis to prevent innocent people being hurt, so with Crown. Banks were seen as too big to fail, and so is Crown. Because it is so big and so powerful, we all end up being bored. And that sat with me in recent days as I've read the reporting in regards to the Royal Commission's findings. I haven't read all 996 pages either. Uh, (laughs) Haven't had the time, unfortunately. But I just can't help but think in Western Australia, we had a proud tradition not allowing pokies anywhere outside of Crown. Or I refer to the 1970s when the Royal Commission into Gambling referred to pokies as requiring no thought, no skill or social contact. I guess I'm, I'm wholly cynical of what is this fatalistic argument around employment figures. I think there's been some very serious allegations and I don't know whether we're dealing with it in a serious enough manner. Yeah, and look, a, a couple of points on that. Uh, one, a lot of those jobs are at the hotels and hospitality mm. venues at the at the resort, Burswood Resort. Mm. Um, now, clearly, the casino sort of adds to the flow of traffic through there, um, but nonetheless, um, you could potentially shut down the casino mm. and the other operations there would continue and save many jobs along the way. Uh, and more generally, there's this frustration um, that you've touched on and a lot of people feel of, well, where does the buck stop here? Who is responsible for this? And we're talking about executives and directors who were extraordinarily well remunerated during this period. Um, you know, there's quite a few um, areas where there was commentary about people having a big workload, um, having to take on lots of responsibilities. Well, they were very well paid and rewarded for that. Um, And these weren't people sort of in the middle management. These were people at the top of the pecking order. Mm. Um, So, yes, um, somewhat disappointing that it appears um, no one has to take responsibility for shocking findings over multiple years. Mm. I know I've had a a lot of fun times at the Crown without going to the gaming floor, so... (laughs) Certainly, it's it's bigger than just its uh, its gambling operations. Uh, turning to the profession of law itself, there's been a bit of upheaval this week and a shuffling of personnel among Perth's major law firms. Mark, you've reported on that one. 
Look, the, the legal market in Perth has gone through quite an extraordinary period of change um, over the past few months, and many of these changes are still afoot. Um, so I've sort of pulled together, you know, I've been hearing talk about lots of people moving and managed to pull together all of that during the week. Um, and incidentally, quite a few of the names that get mentioned here uh, were representing people during the Crown <laughs> Royal Commission. <laughs> How about that? Um, just one more thing that was adding to demand for lawyers. Mm. <laughs> and just the broader backdrop here. Um, the main law firms in town are flat chat. You know, the economy is busy. There are lots of projects underway, lots of corporate finance activity, takeovers, capital raisings, uh, and in particular, lots of project work. And that in turn, when projects go wrong, there's litigation. So that's a really busy period or area, I should say for the law firms in Perth. And a lot of them are really battling to get the quality people that they want to be able to meet demand for their services. Uh, hence, there's been this uh, most unusual period of poaching. Uh, one of the big winners out of this, King & Wood Mallisons, they're of course one of the top tier national firms. They've got a big presence in Perth. They've recruited four partners from Ashurst, um, a couple of uh, people that have a project focus uh, Peter Vaughan and Lorenzo Pacitti, they've already started at King & Wood. But also, and this was a big surprise to many people around town, uh, Roger Davies and Antonella Pacitti. Uh, now, Roger in particular is considered the very top tier of uh, sort of corporate M&A advisors. He'd been at Ashurst for 30 odd years. Um, everyone around town thought he'd stay there till retirement, um, but he's decided to make a move late in his career over to King and Wood Mallisons. So a really big surprise to many people. Uh, now Ashurst has already taken steps to fill some of the gap. They've recruited three people, all of whom have come from Norton Rose Fulbright. So Nor Norton Rose is a big loser out of this. Uh, but um, three partners, Paul Lingard, Miriam D'Souza and Jessica Davies. Um, all sort of corporate lawyers with a with a project slash energy and resources focus. So they're coming in to fill part of the gap at Ashurst, um, but they've still got to deal with the loss of Roger Davies and Antonella. So a big change there. Um, another notable change, uh, Paul Evans, uh, former state solicitor, uh, he set up a Perth office for Quinn Emanuel about five years ago. Now they're renowned as one of the big litigation firms in the US. Um, so Paul was a big get for them, uh, but he also brought in um, a couple of other people to help bolster that practice, but most of them have since moved on. Um, I think what it shows is that it's tough in this town for a big international firm like Quinn Emanuel to come in and just be a specialist litigation firm. Uh, most of their competitors have a, in that sort of you know national, international sphere, most of their competitors, they also have a corporate and projects team who sort of feed work and provide support to the litigation partners. Uh, Quinn Emanuel didn't have that. They've still got one partner in Perth, um, but I think it's a, going to be an interesting question to see how that practice pans out. Uh, Paul Evans is going to HFW, um, formerly Hol Holman Fenwick Willen. Um, so that'll be a significant boost to that firm here in Perth. Um, a few other changes, Spencer Flay, he's gone from Coors over to Clifford Chance. Uh, Paul Shillington left Hogan Lovell and he's gone into Fortescue Metals Group. 
um, and cause have boosted their practice. Uh, Tracy Greenaway, she's been recruited from Allens, and they've got a couple of other people, Anthony Longland and Oliver Carrick, who've uh, recently been appointed partners there. So all in all, um, a really interesting period of change. Um, it'll be good to see in, in terms of competition whether firms like HFW manage to sort of move up the rankings when they've got people like Paul Evans on board. Uh, and also just, I guess, reinforcing what I was saying before about some of the drivers of activity, uh, Clifford Chance talked about two big trends they're seeing in the market. Uh, one, high levels of disputes over infrastructure and construction projects you know, right across the Asia-Pacific region. And a lot of that's been fueled by projects facing delays because of COVID restrictions. Um, and then the other one they see is a really big shift in energy and resources with companies moving into renewables and green energy. So a lot of project work off the back of that. So all in all, a really busy time for lawyers in Perth and uh, a lot of law firms keen to bolster their ranks. Indeed, and I await our next annual feature on law firms. Sticking with the courtroom, Nev Power. We've uh, finally reached some determination on what happened there with his helicopter. So Nev Power, former chief executive of Fortescue Metals and notably former chair of the federal government's COVID-19 mm. commission. Uh, as most people would be familiar, uh, Nev and his son Nick Power flew their private helicopter from Queensland into Western Australia, uh, failed to get a G2G pass, failed to quarantine, uh, got picked up by the authorities, and they were finally sentenced after a, a protracted legal process during the week. And many people had been thinking they might serve time in jail. And in fact, the magistrate seemed to be pointing to that end when at certain points, um, this is Elizabeth Woods, the magistrate said that a, a fine or a community service order were not sufficient. Uh, she said a term of imprisonment is the only appropriate penalty. So she sentenced them to eight months in prison, both of them, but the jail term has been wholly suspended. So if they uh, stay clean for eight months, they won't be serving time in jail, and we can assume that's the case. Um, so clearly they came very close to uh, serving some time in jail. The magistrate described their actions as uh, deliberate, disrespectful and foolish. Um, and I wonder how people might think of that relative to other people who have been sentenced to jail terms for breaching COVID restrictions. Indeed. And uh, it's a study in contrast, isn't it, with uh, Mark Babbage and Hayden Burbank, those poor Melbourne fans who committed fraud and jumped the border and were sentenced to 10 months jail and they had to serve three months of those with seven months suspended in October. Obviously context is key here. We've had this discussion before. You're in a crowd with 61,000 people as opposed to Nev and his son in his helicopter. Oh, no, look, I mean, I think there are some differences we can point to. Um, in this case, they pleaded guilty. They were deemed to be of good character. They were fully vaccinated. Mm. And I think importantly, they've, they'd been in an outback cattle station um, in fact, Nev Power's family-owned cattle station out the back of Mount Isa, mm -hmm. and so they were you know, in a remote location. Um, so, you know, there are some mitigating factors there, and I think the people with the, in the football case had sort of engaged in fraud, um, mm -hmm. got fake IDs, I believe, yep. and came through the Northern Territory. So, look, there are some differences there. 
but yeah, certainly Nev and Nick Power, very lucky to not be serving time in jail. Open speculation before we move on to our next point. I know that Andrew Forrest has a has a reputation for rehabilitating those who are thrown on the trash heap, so to speak, and Nev's obviously lost quite a few positions. The magistrate noted that his reputation has been somewhat harmed by what's gone on. Do you think he might make a return to Mindoro or Fortescue? That's an interesting possibility. I hadn't thought that far ahead. Um, look, he certainly he's either resigned or taken leave of absence from, um, I think, all the board positions that mm. he previously held. He had about half a dozen board roles, including chairing Perth Airport. Um, hard to see him coming back into a either a government or an ASX-listed board role uh, after this. Um, so, look, that could be a possibility. You heard it here first if it uh, does eventuate. And again, just before we move on, COVID, there's been some major announcements this week with restrictions easing next week. Well, look, I think some positive news. Um, and in this case, the Premier has stuck to his word. Um, he said that the restrictions we currently got would be in place for about a month. And um, he stuck to that. Mm. Uh, there had been some concern that... Uh, given the, the number of cases and the fact that the peak in um, uh, in incidents of COVID in WA was happening a bit later than previously expected, that he might push out the current restrictions. Um, but he's not done that. Um, very pleased. Um, you know, I think, as, as I've discussed before, uh, I think the government has probably been a little too harsh with its restrictions. Um, so please, they're being gradually removed or eased off over the coming period. Mm. I think, as I've said on this podcast before with Mark Pownall, glad I'm living in Western Australia with these restrictions because we're doing well at the moment. We are. <laughs> now on something completely different, uh, Santos and Carnarvon Energy. It seems Santos and its junior exploration partner have struck some black gold Texas tea. They certainly have, yes. Um, a big oil discovery off the uh, northwest coast. Um, this is the Pavo One well, uh, 43 million barrels of oil. Uh, now, that rates as one of the largest oil discoveries we've had in Australia for quite some years. Importantly, in this case, it's, uh, what, 46 kilometres, so very close to the Dorado project um, or Dorado discovery, um, which Santos and Carnarvon are currently evaluating and aiming to make a final investment decision later this year on development of that project. Uh, now, this one seems to be um, a booster to that. Um, Kevin Gallagher, Santos Chief Executives, has talked about this being a potential um, low-cost tie-back into the Dorado field or the Dorado development. Um, so it's a, one more source of oil coming in. Um, and then a potential future gas production out of this field, which will add to, you know, Santos, of course, is one of the big suppliers of gas into Western Australia. Um, so look, um, we hear a lot of discussion about the move to renewables and green energy, uh, but fossil fuels are still a major source of um, energy um, in Australia and just about every other country around the world. Uh, and there's still big commercial opportunities in this space. Um, and a big tick here for both Santos and Carnarvon. Mm. Now turning to next week's edition of the magazine, out March 28th. Uh, Mark, you've compiled our most influential list. Uh, there's some big names in, big names out. Let's go through some of those major changes, Mark. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, look, I guess 
two themes here. Um, this is our listing of what you know, the top 50 movers and shakers in business and politics in WA. And we always cap it at 50 for this exercise to sort of keep it fairly tight. Uh, at the very top changes, there hasn't been a lot of change. Um, I'll come to that, you know, the top handful of people. Um, but a little bit lower down the list, there's been a lot of changes. And it's really interesting to reflect then on, uh, you know, how many moves there have been. And a lot of it is tied to people either finishing up or commencing a new role. So chief executive of Woodside Petroleum, you know, that role always ranks as one of the most influential business roles in WA. Peter Coleman retired, and then after a period of acting in the role, Meg O'Neill has been confirmed as the new chief executive. So Meg moves up into our top 10 list. Uh, the other name that's come into our top 10 is Amber Jade Sanderson. So she's a, uh, a relatively inexperienced minister in the state government, but she was given the health portfolio in the reshuffle in December. And look, my assessment is that she has um, handled that role very well. Um, for someone who doesn't have a great deal of experience, she's been thrown in the deep end, uh, been under sort of public gaze almost every day, doing lots of press conferences and constant COVID updates. So I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about Amber Jade Sanderson. She's spoken of as a potential future leader of the WA Labor Party. Um, so she's certainly up there with you know, the most senior ministers in the government, um, alongside the likes of Rita Safiotti and Deputy Premier Roger Cook. Uh, some of the other names, uh, well, Nev Power was one on our top 50 list um, in light of his legal issues um, and leaving board roles. He's dropped off the list completely. Um, another one that's dropped off um, also in dramatic fashion was Christian Porter, mm. you know, had been a federal attorney general um, at you know, rising to the very peak of power in Canberra, uh, but after his personal issues, he's retiring from politics and planning to resume his legal practice back here in Perth. Uh, John Langelant, he'd been in the top 50. Uh, he was someone that served on a whole range of government and private sector boards. Uh, but he's now taken a gig as WA's Agent General in London. Uh, so he's sort of taken off the list. Um, Another one, Basil Zemplis. Now, mm. he was elected with a strong mandate as Lord Mayor of the City of Perth. Uh, but I think what we've seen is that people at that local government level really just don't have a lot of strings to pull. You know, they're, they're beholden to higher levels of government for the really big decisions um, and have limited funding and limited power. Mm. Um, so as much as Basil is a prominent personality in Perth, we don't really see him sort of shifting the dial in terms of what's going on here. Uh, a couple of other people, so Peter Coleman, of course, retired from Woodside. Um, another big retirement was Jimmy Wilson at CBH Group. And I guess that shows that a lot of people on this list, it's tied into a particular job. There are very few people that stay on the list after a change of career. And Ben Wyatt is one of the rare exceptions. So of course, he'd been there right up the very top when he was State Treasurer and Energy Minister. Uh, he has, Unlike most of his peers, who once they retire from politics, they fade away into obscurity, uh, Ben has very quickly established himself as a company director. He was recruited by both Woodside Petroleum and Rio Tinto as a non-executive director, um, along with a bunch of other, I guess, sort of lesser roles that he has. Um, 
So, yeah, a rare example of someone who's still on the list in a second career. Uh, but look, in terms of who's at the very top, well, of course, the Premier, Mark McGowan, uh, is number one on the list, um, you know, re-elected with a huge majority. Um, he's both Premier and Treasurer, uh, and, you know, to has a, a most a very rare opportunity to, uh, to govern for a long period if he chooses to do so. And then sitting just below him, um, Andrew and Nicola Forrest, um, you know, got huge commercial interests, and they're an example. You know, money speaks. Um, they're they're putting their private wealth into their business Tatarang, which is buying all sorts of businesses around the country and developing lots of projects, as well as being very generous philanthropists through their Mindaroo Foundation. And the other one we put up at the very top there is Kerry Stokes, um, also very wealthy, um, very extensive commercial interests particularly notable to have commercial interests in the media um, and that sort of adds to the the power and influence that he has um, and then other people that sit very high on our list Gina Reinhardt uh, with her massive iron ore business uh, Rob Scott who runs West Farmers um, but look there's a, a top 50 there um, it's always fun to pull it together um, happy to hear from people that might run their eye over it and have a different point of view <laughs> um, but yes, look, as an aside, um, there was a, an updated rich list that got uh, released by The Australian during the week, and notable to see uh, two Western Australians at the very top of that list, Gina Reinhardt and Andrew Forrest. Um, so, you know, their, their iron ore riches continue to flow, um, and that gives them the capacity to have a big influence, um, you know, in, in all sorts of spheres around the country. Gee, Mark, I hope when you're talking about Ben White's lesser roles, you're not talking about his job as a non-executive director with the West Coast Eagles, because that would upset me greatly if <laughs> trying to diminish that role. Um, Basil Zemplis is an interesting uh, omission or exit from the list this year, isn't he? Because you think of Victoria or New South Wales, Clover Moore or Sally Cap would surely fit into the 50 most influential people in those states. And I don't know whether it speaks to the fact that those cities have more residents living in them. I know Perth, it's mostly businesses that are the voting residents. So I wonder if that might be part of the reason that uh, that Basil may not have quite as much influence. He's not talking to too many people on the ground in ratio to businesses. And I do want to talk to you a bit about some of the state government ministers who've maybe come in and out of the list. Reese Whitby, he's an interesting one. He's someone who I've personally thought might be a premier at some point. He's certainly got the profile, or at least a profile that's similar to, say, Alan Carpenter or Brian Burke being a former journalist. He's non-aligned within the factions. He's close to the Premier. Where did he rank on the list? Yeah, look, he doesn't quite make the top 50. Mm. Um, I mean, there's quite a few state government ministers in there. You know, other names like Bill Johnson, uh, the, the Mines and uh, Energy Minister at the moment. Um, look, Reese Whitby, look, you're right. He's very close to the Premier. Um, and I think that's been his, arguably, his biggest asset. Mm. Um, he's got some, I guess, lesser portfolios. Um, Environment. Lesser. Well, you know, compared to uh, planning, health, mines, uh, sort of, you know, every state government minister is fairly important, uh, but I'd put him sort of at the, if you like, the, the, the bottom, lower half rather than up the top half. And just before we move on, federal government, we're looking at a possible change. We don't want to go too early. Possible change in a party in the federal government. Obviously, there used to be quite a lot of senior ministers within the Liberal Party here in WA. When it comes to Labor in WA and a possible Labor federal government, how does that transition work? Uh, look, there are not many Western Australians that, that uh, will have a prominent role. Um, Anthony Albanese's shadow ministry um, has just one 
Western Australian um, in the Shadow Cabinet. That's Madeline King, uh, Shadow for um, Energy and Resources, I think. Resources and Trade. Resources and Trade, you're right. Um, so, look, he was asked on his recent visit to Perth whether she would be a, a minister um, in a future Labor government. He declined to say that. Um, he, didn't, he didn't want to name anyone, mm. um, which is fair enough, uh, other than saying she would have a prominent role. Uh, but look, probably, yes, there'll be just one senior WA minister in a, in a Labor government if there is a change, which, of course, is what all the opinion polls are pointing to. Mm. And you'd certainly imagine he'd want some more Western Australians in Cabinet if, uh, if the state helps deliver Labor government. Yeah, look, I, there's quite a few other people um, who are you know, assistant ministers um, or junior ministers, um, and I think the way these things often pan out... They all have those sorts of roles for the next sort of year or 18 months, and if they perform well, they might get moved up. Now, speaking of politics, uh, Jordan, you've done a big wrap-up in our latest magazine on lobbyists, um, a, a topic that usually is in the headlines when people talk about Brian Burke and Julian Grill. Uh, but, of course, it's a, a well-established uh, industry and quite a substantial industry, judging by the uh, database that you've assembled and updated. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It, it does get spoken about in, uh, in, in terms of the controversies that have affected the industry. But as readers might like to know, any time I get a bit bored at my computer, I tend to flick onto the uh, lobbyist register, which the Public Sector Commission keeps. And it's, it's quite an accessible, easy to read thing. But I, I like to have a look at it, see who's new to the list, see new clients added, see if anyone's exited the list. Uh, and this year, I thought to go back and update our own database on lobbyists because I think we've had it in the past. It might not be updated too regularly, but I thought maybe make all this uh, all this random trawling through the list useful for something for once. Uh, and I had a few discussions with some people in the industry. I checked with the list, and there was some some broad criticisms made of the register. I think generally people support it. It's not overly intense in what it requires lobbyists to do. I think you only really need to name who owns your company, who you lobby on behalf of, and who is actually making the representations to the ministers. It's nothing like Queensland or New South Wales, where I think there are quite uh, stringent obligations on what you need to report. Um, so I got that feedback from lobbyists, and, and there were two things that were brought up with me, and one of them is that the list isn't an entirely accurate representation because more often than not, people will just leave their clients on the list and not delete them. Uh, because it's just easy to do that. And if you work for them again in, say, three years' time, it's easier to have them on that list, make the representation on their behalf in the future, and just keep them on the list in the interim, even though you're not actively servicing them. There was also this criticism that you get a lot of weird firms that end up signing up, so camera-based firms or firms that are registered in other states or people who don't actually have any active clients, just to be sure. Uh, so I've taken that feedback, I've checked it against the list, and we've come up with this updated database. I think there's 28 entries there. Uh, and I've just had a look at some market trends. And, you know, look, generally there's been a trend towards integrated offerings in recent years. So firms are now doing investor relations, public relations and government relations. So the top one there is GRA Partners. Uh, they've hired Luke Forrestal, who used to be a reporter at the AFR, and he's heading up their investor relations division. Uh, and consolidation through global ownership is also another trend. So I know that Cleminger Group is a equity partner through GRA Causeway in GRA Partners. Uh, and Cannings Purple, that's another highly rated firm. Uh, they're part of the WPPAUNZ group, which is another a big global holdings company. 
I also asked some of the lobbyists about some major changes in the industry, and I think the two big ones will be this change in federal government to a Labor government uh, and the possible introduction of an anti-corruption commission. Obviously, the state-based anti-corruption commission here was involved in lobbying controversies, and most lobbyists don't seem too alarmed about what's going on. There was not really this big trend towards hiring former Labor staffers because there's incoming Labor federal government. Uh, most lobbyists seem to think that their strength comes from knowing processes rather than knowing people. Uh, and around the Anti-Corruption Commission, I think most people will readily admit that their work doesn't involve twisting the arm of ministers and doing backroom deals. It's often a lot of painstaking communications work. Um, so Daniel Smith made the quote to me, I don't think any anti-corruption commission would be really interested in anything that we do. So it seems like what would be uh, some pretty big uh, outside or big federal implications for the industry aren't really having any effect on lobbyists. Uh, and so I imagine that we'll see more global ownership going forward. Uh, and I assume that we'll see more integrated offerings away from that boutique government relations uh, model that we saw, I don't know, maybe about a decade ago. And Jordan, is there still a frustration that some of the competitors against specialist lobbying firms do not need to register. So I know in the past mm. there's been this concern that uh, an organisation might use a lawyer, for instance, mm. to help represent them, um, and then the lawyer is not registered as a lobbyist, but, if, but is doing a lot of the same things. Yeah, that feedback was given to me off the record, and I think it's a, it's a very broad, uh, a broad criticism that's held of these let's call them third-party lobbyists as opposed to the consultancy lobbyist class. So as you were saying there, law firms are a good example. Uh, industry bodies, so the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Property Council, I imagine, would be among those, or trade unions even. They're allowed to make these representations and seek concessions from ministers, but they don't have to officially register as lobbyists. So there is that frustration. Uh, I know in New South Wales, uh, their ICAC has recommended that the lobbyist code be extended to those uh, particular types of lobbyists. Uh, but here at the moment, yes, it is still consultancy lobbyists and it does still seem to be a bit of a sore point. Yeah. Oh, look, I enjoyed reading uh, your article and seeing your list there. And it's notable that there's that top, what, about five or six firms that are the really big hitters in the mm. market. And then but lots of sort of one and two person firms as well. Mm. Um, but it's a great reference point here for uh, people who are wanting to get a better understanding about who's who and who indeed you might go to if you want to hire a lobbyist. <laughs> so thanks very much, Jordan. And thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Mark My Words. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.